0: on today's show we continue our journey through the decades and today our destination lies in the year 2000 yes fresh on the other side of that dangerous y2k bug was an all-new brand new millennium and we joined it we hit the ground running huge major industry shaking ramifications we're on tap in the movies the music the television and the comic books that were released in the year 2000 we are going to break it all down we are going to show you the new directions that marvel took and what comic book movie was released that changed the course of all comic book films and brought us Flying straight into the MCU. We break it all down today on an all-new Robservations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Robservations. I am your host, Rob Leifeld, hence the name Robservations. Yes, this podcast is named after um, my penchant for making Robservations. A quick note actually addressing something that comes up. Uh, from from now uh, and again, that Rob observations was started as a column that I did in a fan magazine back in the 1980s. Back in 1985, is my very first Rob observations column, and then later in the 90s, uh, Wizard magazine, a very popular publication at the time, uh, hired me to do a monthly column for them, and I did that, and it was also called Rob observations. So sometimes people are like, "Hey, how long have you been doing?" Observations, and I'm able to tell them since I was 17 years old, this podcast is now headed into its third year, so it is the third year of our recorded Raw Observations, but I took this moniker in 1985 and started doing columns on comic books and pop culture, and again, like I said, the, the most uh, popular prior to this was the monthly columns that I did in the Wizard magazine called Observation. So there's a little bit of uh, back history that you didn't know you needed and you didn't really want, but I gave it to you anyway to start off this uh, th- th- this week's installment. We have a very packed, very busy episode. I'm excited about this subject matter. Excited to bring it to you. Still amazed at all of the comic books in the pop culture. Okay, on the way home. Uh, I, I was traveling this last weekend on the way home. You know, I saw all manner of uh, posters and 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 billboards and 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 advertisements in the in the airports, all 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 out. You know, on the freeways for the the upcoming Thor Love and Thunder movie that is coming out. That I guess that's the fourth Thor film, and I'm looking forward to it. Just like so many of the rest of you, I saw billboards for uh, the Boys uh, season three, which is off doing very well. A lot of buzz. I saw. You know, billboards that hadn't been taken down yet for the Robert Pattinson Batman. I saw Lightyear uh, advertisements. And, and I mean, again, the, the, the pop culture and comic books have just smashed up to make this one gigantic uh, mainstream-like current that never stops flowing. When, when I went to see uh, the sequel or whatever, the third Jurassic World Movie This last weekend, I was deluged again by trailers for Thor and then for the upcoming uh, Black Adam, which I talked of recently. And again, a lot of times when I'm discussing things with you, they're out of points of interest. If you would have told me that in 1977, when the back, because it was the back of Black Adam, is flying at Shazam, Captain Marvel, who is flying towards us. But the back of Black Adam and it says, oh, no, it's Black Adam. My first encounter with Black Adam and this character who I would see sporadically very little of over the next 10 years, really 20 years. And then in since 2007 and I was able to share that article online this last week. 2007 is when The Rock announced his involvement with Black Adam. If you would have told me that this character that was a side kind of dish, a side dish in the Shazam family was going to get his major his own major $200 million movie and I'd be watching, you know, Black Adam and Adam Smasher and Dr. Fate traditional, just a, a, a petri dish of C-list characters, which I love. By the way, if you've ever followed my career, the C-list characters are where I live, okay? And there are so many more that have yet to get this spectacular treatment. But Black Adam is definitely the the darling of the D-list, C-list ball right now. And to see that he has his own giant trailer playing in front of me is just, again, a giant exclamation point on where we are in terms of smashing up comic books with pop culture we are doing a series called the decades series examining years in the business in the business of comic books and pop culture that I believe were instrumental absolutely instrumental in in turning and shifting the direction I, I spoke of the current that never stops flowing okay that current could be data information it could be an actual river you know uh, uh, of comic book water but 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 the current just does not stop flowing it's actually picking up speed and velocity and the currents are getting even, even more dicey out there. Okay. Uh, the, the the river, the rivers are getting wilder because it just keeps filling up with more and more and more of this comic book, pop culture, uh, uh, you know, material that I speak of and, and, and certain years shift that current, they make it stronger. They shift the direction. And, uh, you know, in, in the, I believe it's the opening of If you watch Yellowstone, which I've shared with you guys on the show, that I, I absolutely love Yellowstone. I think it was the original season one. Maybe it's the the the, the pilot, the original episode. Uh, or in, in the first few episodes, the, the, these guys want this land, and it's divided by a river. And one of the things that Kevin Costner's character does is he literally hires a guy with dynamite and explosives to shift the course of the river. And so again, it, 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 using Yellowstone imagery... And ridiculous, uh, uh, you know, pyrotechnics that I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, and explosives that I'm not sure it's even possible to do. But, but certain years shift the current of the river, and this pop culture river was absolutely shifted. Given this year that we are going to discuss today, we're going to do it in two parts, just like we're given all of these uh, different uh, uh, decades series. These specific years, we're giving them two parts. Today, we are diving into the year. 2000. Yes, I also hear, I believe it was, if, man, if I'm wrong, I'm so wrong, but I think it was Conan O'Brien who did the, um, oh man, it's early, so this is going to be raspy, but when they did the year 2000, (laughs) in the year 2000, it's a really funny comic that I believe Conan O'Brien did, and if I have assigned it to the wrong comedian, you'll all let me know. And then they'd, you know, talk about all the wonderful things that are coming in the year 2000, even when we were in the year 2005. So, because uh, it just sounds so futuristic. We all survived, you know, Y2K, the the, the Y2K bug that was going to shut us all down on the eve of 2009, the last day of 1999. If you weren't alive, the world was gripped by the Y2K bug, which was, with which which you know, myth will tell you was going to shut all computers down that they had not set the dates correctly. And long story short, Everything was going to turn off and we were going back to the dark ages. So two things, we knew somebody in our community whose entire family had invested thousands upon thousands, I want to say at least a hundred thousand dollars in stocking firearms and uh, food in bunkers, uh, in their homes, in their basements as a family. And this is like, this guy had two brothers and two sisters and then the, the mom and dad. So, so all of them and all of their different families in the surrounding area that we lived, had partaken um, in this practice because they were convinced, convinced that they would be the only people who were well-stocked when the lights went out, the power went down, and we were all back on horses you know, because the computers in the cars were going to shut down too. This was real crazy stuff. I can't believe we gave it as much uh, bandwidth as a community, as a, as, a, as a society as we did. But but on, I mean, it was the cover of Time Magazine, the cover of Newsweek, back when being on the cover of a magazine mattered. It was all over the news. It was that countdown. I'm going to tell you how uh, literally, uh, you know, serious Some people took this. I mean, I just gave you this one example. And obviously when things were fine on January 1st, 2000, uh, we kind of, because we actually had liked these people, or maybe we're just polite. We really didn't rub it in their face or talk of it again, but they knew that they had announced to everyone that they were the, you know, apocalypse preppers, apocalyptic preppers. And they had prepared for Y2K in a very extreme fashion, as I just shared with you, firearms and extra food and water for quite some time hopefully that stuff was uh good canned goods and for the next upcoming apocalypse that family is still uh prepared truth truth be told most of that family now lives in texas and uh and there you go but another example of this at a recent function i bumped into the mother of a family that i grew up with in the 70s early 80s and i had not seen uh many of them in in quite some time but i did on social media know that one of the brothers had moved to Australia, but I didn't know the, the, the background behind this. And he has a beautiful family. And I see that they're doing great in, in Australia. And, and, and sometimes, sometimes, uh, they go between Australia and New Zealand. While well, I was able to ask this person's mom, I said, oh yeah, well, I see that, you know, so-and-so is over in, uh, Australia. And she said, do you know why that happened? And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, you know, it was because of Y2K and, um, he moved his family there and because that that, that that he had prepared that that would be the best place for them to ride out this you know the the Y2K bug as 1999 became 2000 and she said after it didn't happen he didn't want to move the family back he took a job ironically in tech over the, over there in in and that's why he bounces between Australia and New Zealand so we in the year 2000 were coming off this crazy Y2K bug that was all the rage from pretty much August through December, through, through New Year's Eve of 1999. If you were watching the ball drop on 1999, people were making jokes like, you know, is uh, is the TV going to go off as soon as the ball drops and as soon as it turns 2000? And so again, if you're younger and you're first hearing about this, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we even <laughs> had to go through that Y2K stuff. That's crazy. But anyway, on the other side, we found a way. We found our way through. The computers turned on. The buttons worked. Oh, the, the cars started We were able to forge ahead in this amazing new world of 2000. And today we are going to cover all of the ways, all of the different ways that the year 2000 affected pop culture. And boy, are there some doozies. Uh, Sometimes I end with top 10 lists of the music and the movies and the TV, but I'm going to set the tone before I get into the comic books. I'm going to tell you just so you're, you're, maybe you'll you'll remember some of the albums. What, What was the music that we were listening to? In the year 2000, (laughs) I can't even do it. (laughs) In the year 2000, okay, I I won't do that again. Look, the voice, the voice broke really, really quickly there. So here we go. In the year 2000, do you remember what the top 10 albums were? And some of you're going to be like, "No, I didn't have that." And you're like, "No, yeah, you did. You you had this CD because you were still buying CDs because you definitely weren't downloading this from the cloud." Because so 2000, remember, it's 22 years ago. This is 22. It seems like yesterday, but this is 22 years ago. Is that insane? It is insane. So here we go. You made in sync, no strings attached, no strings attached in sync. Bye, bye, bye. Was the number one album came out late summer, fall, and uh, sold 10 million copies. Wow, I mean uh, Justin Timberlake knew that so much of that level was for him and figured it out fast. I've talked, I talk to you guys all the time. Windows open and they're only open for a brief period of time and you have to go through them before they close Justin Timberlake to his credit took this in sync success and boom went off and became the Justin Timberlake show Eminem Marshall Mathers you guys come on Slim Shady baby Uh, I mean Mr. Eminem Marshall Mathers was crushing Eminem was crushing it in the year 2000 okay number three fighting she's tied with Eminem you guys and she's back in the news all, all over again but Oops, She Did It Again, Britney Spears, her second, her follow-up album. To hit me one more time, Britney Spears um, with Lucky and Oops, I Did It Again. These songs were huge. Britney Spears and NSYNC and Eminem dominated uh, MTV. Do you guys remember TRL? Uh, you know, Total Request Live. Watched it all the time. Yes, I was a 30-year-old man, and I had my, I still had my MTV on all the time, just like when I was a teenager and a 20-year-old man. So Creed, okay, Creed huge what i mean a a a a a huge album sold 8.7 million copies you know wow human clay it had the you know can you take me higher great tune great tune santana had come back had come roaring all the way back uh santana supernatural was the number fifth album of 2000 the beatles re-released the beatles won re-released big deal they were Doing high-end re-release editions of this number six, Nelly Country Grammar. It's getting hot in here, okay. Remember that, <laughs> Nelly number seven, The Backstreet Boys. I want it that way. Remember that, okay. I feel like Casey Kasem right now. Uh, doing okay. Even if you don't know who that is, maybe uh, the Ryan Seacrest. The the they the, the used to be a weekend countdown. I'm convinced somewhere I could go get all those Casey Kasem countdowns. He was the guy that gave the top 40 for a million years when I was growing up. Every Sunday, you listen to the top 40, and he would count down from 40 to 1. I'm Casey Kasem, okay? So I feel like I'm doing this right now. We're about to wrap it up. Dr. Dre had $4 million with his 2001 album, and Destiny's Child, Writings on the Wall, was the number 10. Uh, 11 and 12, Three Doors Down, Christina Aguilera, Limp Bizkit, Disky Chick, Dixie Chicks, you guys— uh, a whole lot of, of albums. Pop was raging, uh, during, during 2000. So that kind of sets the tune to some of the music that you were no doubt listening to it. We had all of that music. We listened to all of it. We were very, a very pop couple at the time. The year 2000 is very important to me because it was the birth of my first born son. My, my, my oldest child was born in the heat of, wait for it, the Lakers Three-peat run that started in, in 2000. Shaq, Kobe, Phil Jackson came on board. That was a huge year. I uh, had to vanquish those pesky Portland Trailblazers in a, in a incredible Game 7 that found me running out in jumping into the pool with my clothes on. At the end of that, I was so relieved that we were making it to the finals where the Lakers beat the Indiana Pacers to claim the NBA championship. My son was born May 9th of 2000. I believe it's the day that Shaq got his MVP. So uh, the, the the two thousand is twenty two years ago, but it seems like it was yesterday because twenty two years doesn't mean the same to me as it used to. It's just it all goes by so quickly. So you had the Lakers hoisting the championship. Um, now later that year, my Rams would win. Uh, would win earlier that year, my Rams would win the Super Bowl. Okay. So, so, so the the beginning of the Kurt Warner greatest show on turf. I mean, uh, you, you wonder why 2000 is so resilient in my mind. And so, so, so I'm so focused on it because, because I was just having such a good time. I was having my first baby with my, with, with, with my, with my wife and welcoming our son. And then and, and my, my Rams and my Lakers were both champions killer year. Right. And, and a lot of great music, a lot of absolutely fantastic music, but what was going on in the world of comic books is even more interesting. The year 2000 found a shifting of the guard now it happened late but marvel had come out of bankruptcy now we need to cover this because again i've done this a couple times but you really need to understand um because there's a lot of a a lot of misinformation when i was at a recent store signing a guy was like i'm so thankful that you covered this on your show and, and 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 explained to people that the comic book sales were not the reason For Marvel's bankruptcy that is in one word and it's an extended word with many syllables is it's poppycock that is poppycock that comic book sales were why Marvel filed bankruptcy because I was a contract player because I had a contract of a certain amount I had to get the call the day before they filed bankruptcy and that was ironically Christmas Day I got the call from the president of Marvel. His name was Scott Scott Sassa. He was only there a brief time, but he said, Rob, I have to call you because you're a contract player and inform you ahead of time that we will be filing for bankruptcy the day after Christmas. And I was like, whoa, okay. Well, there you go. The writing had been on the wall because the man, Ron Perlman, who who owned Marvel at the time, it wasn't the comic book sales. It wasn't that. That's the ridiculous game of telephone that people have found themselves in. That 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 people and people online and, and some of these honestly they're very creepy, very creepy. Maybe bot accounts, but they they all like they all have twenty two followers. They all have thirty followers, and they all kind of say the same talking point. That low sales, low comic book sales drove Marvel into bankruptcy. That is not true. Marvel was the owner of Marvel was obsessed with buying companies. He bought a giant international, uh, uh, I I believe it is French origin, uh, or Italian, excuse me, uh, 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 sticker company. He did more than stickers. They had trading cards, all very expensive called Panini, Panini, P-A-N-I-N-I. You can tell me what nationality it is. I don't really care. I just know that it was called Panini on top of buying Toy Biz because he also bought a comic book distribution d- distribution center called Heroes World to go with his comic book company. Buying a toy company, he didn't want to license out the toys. He wanted to own the company that made the toys based on his characters. He wanted to own the sticker and the trading card company that made the st- the, the, the the stickers and the trading cards based on his company. He wanted to own the warehouse network of shipping and trucks that that distributed his his comic books. This guy. Uh, 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 at the same time also was bankrolling production entities that made, you know, Marvel cartoons, which was also a great profit center. He had just absorbed too much debt. You can go and look up how much debt I didn't do that homework. I don't need to. I just know that it was so much so that he was going upside down. It's called bleeding red ink, which he was and to stop it and to resort and to reevaluate and to restructure. They filed bankruptcy. The comic books never stopped being published and the comic book company was profitable throughout comic books are not that expensive to create. They don't give a huge yield back, but they don't cost a lot to make. So that's why they're always kind of okay and stay in operation. But Marvel took a good long time because there was a number of other very wealthy businessmen, other billionaires who wanted to fight for the control of, of, uh, of Marvel. And, and the guy who came out, the winner, Ike Perlmutter, uh, you know, beat all the other guys who were battling Ron Perlman. This has been uh, chronicled. I don't have the books, but there is like the war for Marvel or the the the, the behind-the-scenes battle for Marvel Comics. They actually wrote books about this that have all the, you know, little details that that that, that went into, you know, buying, you know, garbage stock, you know, uh, sorting the stock. I mean, it, it got into all sorts of business areas as people who wanted those assets on the other side um, were able to invest in and try and purchase and buy out what was left of Marvel Comics. So Ron Perlman eventually uh, having filed bankruptcy towards the very end of 1996, eventually Marvel is emerging from bankruptcy in 2000 and they have a new kind of uh, leadership and that new leadership is going to exert itself. One key player in all of this is the man named Bill Jemis, J E M A S. You heard a lot of his name in the early 2000s. I met Bill. I met Bill prior to him becoming the big um, executive uh, publisher of Marvel uh, when he was working in the trading cards, uh, you know, uh, in in a different capacity with Marvel. And then I met him as he assumed his power and became the head of Marvel. Bill Jemis is the reason I came back and did my 2004. 2005 2004 it was released in 2004 x-force miniseries he wanted me to come back into the fold he extended uh what was an an, an, an incredible opportunity in terms of uh a, just, just one of the best deals that i had ever been offered to entice me to come out of retirement and do x-force again which i did and i followed that up with a Shatterstar miniseries so i had you know very personal interactions with bill he is the one who did my business dealings and i did my contract with Uh, He took, when he wanted to take very uh, personal interest in the business aspects of Marvel, he did. He took me out to lunch in uh, July, August, excuse me, August of 2000, Wizard World 2000. And uh, we discussed kind of how I saw Marvel, how he saw Marvel, how things were going to go forward. And during that time, he expressed to me, you know, some of the, you know, things that he was not pleased with. Uh, had nothing to do with me. Uh, and that, and I'm gonna pivot now towards one of the biggest uh shifts. One of the biggest reasons I call the year 2000 a giant shift because so much of what I'm about to tell you dominates it, it is dominated around the discussion and the performance of a movie that really no one saw coming. Everyone scoffed at it, and and it ended up being uh, I think the number six movie of 2000, and it is called X Men. Yes, the very first. X-Men with um, Patrick Stewart, Sir Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen, Hugh Jackman. That movie was not positioned to be the blockbuster, and it was by $2,000, 2000 box office dollars. It was absolutely considered a blockbuster. It was not deemed to be a success. It, it, there there was a lot of trepidation about uh, the movie being released and what status it would achieve. And as I shared with you in Entertainment Weekly, two years ago, Hugh Jackman shared very intimate details that after shooting X-Men, after actually shooting it because it was the movie that kind of really gave him his launch, um, and, and, and and the role of Wolverine was was was, you know set to transform his career, but in in, in a fashion that he and his management and his reputation didn't was, wasn't even aware of yet. And uh, he gave a quote where he outlined that in that time, post filming, his role as Wolverine in the X-Men and actually, you know, the movie being released, which, which was anywhere from, from six to nine months during, during this window, he had been informed by his management to not, uh, to not share that he had made a comic book movie. And he was, uh, he, he was very, uh, fearful of when he would go to do auditions and they'd say what else you done he said oh i have a new i have a fox film i just did a big film for fox is what the agents and the managers had told him to say they said don't don't say that you've been a comic book character you know we, we don't know how that's going to turn out and we don't want them to use that against you so he very openly admitted to that uh and and and, and again this is key because there is a bunch of people, these these ridiculous, remember those Twitter bots, those 30, those 20 accounts that I just mentioned because there's a giant lie out there. The the comic book big lie is that the Wesley Snipe Blade movie somehow was significant in getting more comic book movies made. It was not. For two years, nothing else happened because they saw it and it was made and marketed as a vampire horror film. Yes, it was a Marvel comic. We all know this. He had never had his own, like Black Adam, Blade had never had his own series. It was greenlit, given that the movie was coming out. But prior to that, getting the movie made, it was because Wesley Snipes, uh, I think, chose between Blade or Black Panther or wasn't able to get Black Panther off the off the ground. And Blade was the option for him to have a giant leading role uh, in, in this significant manner, being a black comic book character, of which there weren't a lot of successful versions of black comic book characters in pop culture, and media, in te- television, in cinema. So Wesley Snipes using his considerable screen power and, and box office uh, uh, clout, which he had plenty of at the time, used it to get this movie made. My friends at New Line made this. They are my buddies. I still talk to them. This movie was made and marketed as a horror vampire thriller, not a comic book superhero film. But the retro people want to go, no, that's the way. It's an extremely well-made movie, by the way. It's Blade is fantastic. Uh, it, again, the year before was the dodgy Spawn film. And yes, it is a dodgy film. Go back and watch it. It's very dodgy. It's very poorly made. Spawn is not a well-made movie. It opened big and then crashed. Blade played and did and, and did better and was actually arguably less well-known. Spawn had sold millions of copies. Spawn had millions of toys on the shelves. Blade was actually the more unknown quantity in 1998 if you are going to sit and tell me that people knew who blade the comic book character was outside of the few clubhouse comic book stores you are 100 incorrect that did not happen that was really surged on wesley snipes star power and that guy was i mean from from for, for he had about a five-year run there uh where, where, where wesley was a i mean he was a giant movie star and Blade helped continue that with all those amazing Blade sequels. Blade 2 is fantastic. Uh, but but Blade 1, super successful, but did nothing to greenlight and to further show that other comic book movies should get made. I know I was there and so were my friends and none of our movies got made and none of Marvel's movies moved the needle. X-Men had been bounced around for quite some time because it was the most popular comic book. The X-Men was the most popular comic book Of the last 30 years, okay? I mean, it is 2000. The X-Men relaunched and took comic books by storm in 1975. It had been the number one cartoon show for five seasons on Fox in the 90s. That is the engine that was driving getting the X-Men movie made. Not some Echo from the Blade movie, which had produced no other movies after it in a two-year window. So the X-Men movie is coming out and nobody knew how it was going to do. I was fortunate enough Fox let me go to an early, early, early advanced screening and I could not believe how well the movie played. And it was by Brian Singer who has gone on to be extremely controversial, but at the time had made Apt Pupil and The Usual Suspects. These were small movies. He was not a blockbuster filmmaker. This was not James Cameron, although I believe several of the lighting and the and the, and the shooting techniques and the angle and the storytelling was very James Cameron influenced. Brian Singer was not a blockbuster filmmaker. Hugh Jackman was not in a, a household name. M- many of you know, and I need to tell you, because you will then tell me, hey, didn't, didn't you know this? Of course I knew it. Dugray Scott. Dugray Dugray Scott, what a great name, okay, was in Mission Impossible as the foil that summer uh, against Tom Cruise. In and in, in, in Mission Impossible do, did quite better than X-Men because it was a sequel to a super successful Tom Cruise movie. But Dugray Scott was originally tapped to be Wolverine. But because Mission Impossible had to go through reshoots, he had to drop out of being Wolverine. Now, Dugray Scott was not a household name either. But so 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 you'd have gotten Doug gray scott who no one had heard of who who had been i think in in, in a drew barrymore maybe it was the retelling of cinderella um or, or one of those fairy tale movies that had come a couple years prior that's where he he really broke out and got his name and and what i mean his name got noticed by casting people because again people did not know who doug gray scott was but he then got this giant role opposite tom cruise as the foil and uh And so he couldn't, when those schedules conflicted, they went to another guy that we'd never heard of in Hugh Jackman. It made Hugh Jackman's career. And and let me tell you something, sidebar, having met Hugh Jackman, having spoken to, visited, you know, been with Hugh Jackman, he is a sweetheart of a man also ridiculously charismatic, ridiculously kind and generous and friendly. And obviously if you've seen him and I've seen his stage productions, his song and dance, his, uh, His, 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 touring shows, the guy is immensely talented, the dancing, the singing, uh, on top of all the great roles that we've, we've enjoyed him and chief among those. And he knows it because he'll mention it in his, in, when he's touring, doing, you know, the greatest showman, he'll mention Wolverine, he'll mention Wolverine and how proud he is of all those performances. But we didn't know how much we would love it. And we didn't know how, how well they'd made it. And Professor uh, Xavier, as as portrayed by Patrick Stewart, was phenomenal. We loved it. We ate it up. Ian McKellen was Magneto. Fantastic. The entire cast. The entire cast was phenomenal. And X-Men went on to have a giant opening and play throughout the summer. And I think it made 159, I want to say 159 million. It just 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 shy of the uh of, of of the 162 million uh at the box office. I have have it right here. It made. One hundred fifty-seven, two hundred ninety-nine thousand dollars. One hundred fifty-seven million, two hundred ninety-nine thousand dollars. It is the number six movie of the year, two thousand. Okay, Mission Impossible, as I already mentioned, uh, was the number two movie of the year at two hundred and fifteen million. So, so again, it, uh, it 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 did sixty plus better than 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 the X Men, and uh, wow. Just just what a great movie. What a great summer. Again, when we get to the summer movies, this is great. But the X-Men movie came out and was very successful. It was number one at the box office. It was, it was a big movie for the remainder of the summer. It was not one of those movies that kicked off the summer. That would fall to, you know, movies we're going to discuss later. The aforementioned Mission Impossible 2 and Gladiator, okay? But the X-Men had come out in uh, late June and you know, hung around the rest of the summer, made it, made, made all of its money, um, got people buzzing. Trust me, if you go back in time, that is the movie that changed everything. That is the movie that suddenly you were like, wow, there is a ton of people with superpowers. What separates it from Blade? Blade, single character guy against, you know, a cadre of vampires who has cool gear and weapons and has super strength and can leap. And, you know, Blade is obviously super powered. And again, the way they shot that in the first moment, mil- first film is fantastic. But x-men is now a super team it's going beyond the boundaries of what we've seen with superman batman blade and it is giving us multiple characters i mean a dozen characters have superpowers in that film and they range from the weird creepy to toad to the feral you know cybertooth uh Sabretooth, <laughs> cybertooth there's a new character we just created him together on this show uh saber wolverine you had the you know visor of of james marsden's cyclops uh you know, Fomka Jansen as, 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 as Jean Grey. I mean, it, it all worked. That first film, you can see where it is, you know, very cost effective. I think they spent 60 million. I mean, that's, that's not a hundred million dollar production. That's not even an $80 million production, but just for kicks, think of the Deadpool in 2016 was made for 10 million less than X-Men in 2000. Okay. Cause Fox, the accountants are a big deal at Fox. They love their ledgers. They love their profit margins and they and and going all the way back to when they made the Planet of the Apes movies the 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 budgets are everything they want to squeeze the most money out of their movies and they will cut 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 in order to do so so X-Men was the best possible movie at the you know tightest budget possible to give you a, a superhero film and it still works because it's well told it's well made it's well shot so Bill Jemis discusses with me his anger that Marvel wasn't ready to pounce when X-Men hit with enough audience-accessible X-Men tie-ins. Now, the people in the X-Men office who had, by the way, made Marvel millions of dollars a decade uh, for, for the last decade and mainly the, the, the 1990, 1991, 1992, Bob Harris is still in control. He's the editor-in-chief at the time. His X-Men office had made Marvel untold millions of dollars by taking a chance on guys like Jim Lee, Wills Portacio, myself... Uh, and putting us in key positions to generate giant sales. And, and I said, you know, comic books are relatively cheap to make, so when they do break into the millions and millions of profits, the profit centers are the kind of things that Fox accountants, you know, would go crazy for, okay? So Marvel had made millions and millions off these, the, the, the X-Men under Bob Harris. And, and trust me, as I've told you before, the characters of Cable and, and, and Deadpool and Strife and, and Gambit had become big action figure sales and had had had, had those those brand new characters were what were, what was driving collectors to go out and buy, you know, I have all of them, 10 different cable figures, five different Deadpool figures, okay? Two Gambits, okay? Three Stripes, two Kane Weapon X figures. This was a giant profit center that was making money for Marvel again and again and again. So this time out, based on the temperature that nobody knew how well this X-Men movie was, they went conservative turned out to be a costly mistake from Bill Jemis's point of view that had they had stuff ready to go to capitalize on the movie but but would they they had made the decision that we don't know if this movie's going to be any good I mean looking back will uh, Hugh Jackman is not even telling people that he's playing Wolverine in a comic book movie in his auditions in between movies because his agency is like hey downplay this just tell me you're you're in a big you know 65 million dollar Fox film so, so they erred on the side of caution, and it really drew the ire of the new boss. And Bill Jemis told me that he would be replacing Bob Harris, and I knew there was nothing I could say to stop it. It was a foregone conclusion. And by, you know, roughly a month later, Bob Harris had been dismissed for all manner of different reasons. The new guy always wants to have his own guy. But uh, Bob had steered the company in a diff- difficult time through its bankruptcy, which the comic books were still making money, but you had to generate and justify budgets after budgets after budgets and why this guy is getting paid this much. And there was still even probably greater battles behind the scenes to keep the comic book publishing going as robust as it was. But it was Bob Harris's time to go. They, they, they installed Joe Casada as his replacement and Bill Jemis and Joe Casada would go on to be nicknamed Quemis Quemis because Joe was the more known quantity, but we are a, Culture, obviously, Benefer, we, we love doing this, right? We, we love to mash up the names. And so they mashed up Quesada and Jemis and called them Quemis. Well, Bill Jemis had big plans. Here's why I do not look on the 2000s of Marvel with a whole lot of favor. And just so you know, the reason that we're even going out to lunch is because I'm in Wizard World in 2000 promoting my run on Wolverine. I did the last uh, four issues, I believe, of the year 2000. Or I think I did August... I think July, August, September, October. So not not the last four, but closed out a quarter's worth of Wolverine, of Wolverine stories. And they called me when Steve Scroes who had taken over the book uh, and done some unbelievable storyboard work and worked really tight with the Wachowskis in making The Matrix. They called him back to do the sequels. So he had to leave Wolverine. I was on the 405 freeway in Los Angeles on my car phone when I got the call from Bob Harris in you know, like July, saying, Rob, will you step in and do a number of issues, which I did. And so uh, very proud to have been doing Wolverine during this period. Wolverine was the, uh, while I did it, was the number three book at Marvel in July, August, September, October. Number three comics. So I am producing one of their top comics. The only book at Marvel that was outselling me was X-Men. So I was back in familiar territory. I love Wolverine, you guys. If you've known and watched this show, you know that he is my favorite character of all space and time. And I believe this is the only time that I ever did this character. But I was, um, you know, I when I got my royalty checks, I saw these books sold over 100,000. And here's why that's not very important. It's a sad state of affairs. I've told you that I was really proud of taking New Mutants from 100,000 sales to a million sales in the late 80s, early 90s. The top books in comics now were only selling 100,000 units. And it was shortly after, just shortly after, in, in, in 2001, that the number one comic book in America was no longer selling 100000 The number one comic book in America from either publisher, from any publisher, was selling 96,000 units. We had dropped under the six-figure mark. I mentioned the convention scene. Wizard World that summer and San Diego Comic-Con that year were incredibly depressing. They were the lowest attending. It was the lull that no one talks about before uh, Hollywood came. And I did a dedicated podcast maybe two months back about when Hollywood came to Comic-Con with Angelina Jolie and with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger to promote Tomb Raider 2, uh, Terminator 3. And and that's when Hollywood first darkened the door of Hall H and Comic-Con, and it was about to be transformed. But 2000 was a super sad year. It is based on that summer that I retired for three years. I did not produce comics till 2003. I decided, you know what? I've had a good run. I'm super tired. I was not alone. Here's another after effect of 2000. Um, my peers were all kind of, uh, we all kind of went into remission. We semi-retired. Mark Silvestri stopped making comic books. Dale Keown stopped making comic books. Jim Lee stopped making comic books. Will's Portacio stopped making comic books. I stopped making comic books. Todd was not drawing comic books. When I say making, I mean drawing, using the God-given talents that we had that drew you guys to our work in the first place. Eric Larson, I believe, was the only one. Uh, guys like J. Scott Campbell were dialing it down and, and slowing, cutting back completely. It was this this 90s decade had come to an end, and I have discussed it many times. It's like when you watch those um, behind the music or, or any of the documentaries you've seen, whether it's a band like the Eagles or Fleetwood Mac or, you know, something like Aerosmith or, or even, you know, the guys from Pearl Jam in the 90s. You just get burnout. Too much touring. And you've done all the major cities, you've done them twice and people get burnout. That's why they, 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 they fall apart. Sometimes the bands don't hold together or the acts just, they take years off. We had all kind of been, I, 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 I've told you this and maybe I'll get this quote, right? It's from Blade Runner. When the doctor says Roy to Roy to, to Rutger Hauer, the, the, the light that burns twice as bright burns half as long and you have burned so very bright. Roy, And it was kind of his way of saying why they have these short lifespans. We burned twice as bright. And, and, and I think maybe longer than we had any, you know, uh, business burning. But the bottom line is we had all burned out on the same, at the kind of the same time. And we're no longer producing a lot of work. I took after 2000, I had told my wife, I remember very distinctly over dinner saying, I'm not sure where the comic book industry is going. And I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to watch for a while. Why I'm telling you this, well, first of all, when I mentioned me and my peers, you guys are aware, and some of you, the the, the fans of the show are aware, we were the guys who were at the top of the charts, and we all kind of decided to take time off. I then became an observer of the comic industry and did that pretty much 24-7. I bought original art, sold original art, and really just watched the comic book industry with great interest as not a participant anymore, as just an observer. I went out with those four Wolverine issues, figured this is the perfect way to go out is to go out in the top, you know, three, which gave me that, that whether it was the nineties, the two thousands or the recent, you know, this recent, um, you know, in 2017, I've always, you know, no matter the, the, the the decade, I've had a book in the top three. And, and so I I felt like this is fun. This is a great way to to go out. And, and, and the Wolverine stories were super fun, but now I'm going to watch. And what I watched is a very conservative approach to everything going forward in regards to Marvel. Quemis, the Quemis era, is to me marked by what we this what, what I've talked about before is the derivative era. It is the era of the derivatives. They ushered it in. They made it the thing. Their biggest uh, accomplishment is the ultimate line of comic books, which gave you the retreads, the Retelling of the Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Stan Lee and Steve Ditko stories in with with this new updated flavor like cell phones or like laptop computers, new technology on top of old stories. It was it's it's it's, it's deemed a fresh take. And before you go, well, Lifele, that's that's your opinion. Well, no, it's not. I'm going to read to you right now out of a Marvel published book called the the Marvel Chronicles, which chronicles every single year. Man, this thing is a big mother. It is a giant mother of a uh, of, of, of a of a coffee table book, as as I am able to bring to you guys often, and I'm going to read to you right now what it says about the 2000s. In the 2000 section, it says 2000 new kids in town. Bill Jemis becomes the new president of Marvel Comics, and he quickly promotes Joe Quesada, a superstar artist who had done wonders in recent years with his Marvel Knights imprint. To the position of editor-in-chief. They seem to have a magic touch. Through a combination of brainstorming and butting heads, these two set out to recreate Marvel Comics into the thriving company it is today. But they didn't do it quickly. Among many changes Quesada and Gemma's brought about was hiring new editors like Axel Alonso and Stuart Moore. Both, by the way, inserting Rob's commentary, are no longer at the company and haven't been at the company for uh, at least five years in Axel Alonzo's and and, and more with Stuart Moore. Both Alonzo and Stuart Moore, formerly of DC Vertigo Comics, applied their and connections to their new Marvel assignments. Casada also created a few editorial mandates, instructing his staff to bring back to to I'm sorry, instructing his staff to stop bringing characters back to life in order to up the drama. In consequence, when they die in the first place, as well to ease the constant. Uh, nostalgia and self-referential elements that seem to plague a majority, a majority of Marvel's books. The Marvel Knights, then the Marvel Knights line, continued its success for a short period after. Casada and Jemis went one better, and created the ultimate imprint, a long-lasting line of blockbuster comics that will remain at the top of the sales charts for years until they were canceled. Okay, I added that part because. uh, this book, this 2000s book, came out in 2016, so it goes many years after this, what I just read to you, but that is the giant 2000 blurb, so don't say that it's my opinion. I am giving to you from a Marvel published book. You can go buy it. You can get it on Amazon. It's a handsome book. It is Marvel Year by Year, a visual chronicle. It is by. It is technically published by DK Books, but it is produced um, by Marvel Comics And again, the 2000 blurb now. So the ultimate line is what this says is, is their, their, their giant imprimatur. This is their huge accomplishment. The ultimate line of comic books, which would basically take the old Stan and Jack X-Men stories and Avenger stories and the Stan and Steve Spider-Man stories and reboot them for a new time. They slightly aged down Spider-Man. Now, Again, I've shared with you on another uh, podcast how by this time they were getting scripts in for the new Spider-Man movie. And they knew that it was going to go backwards, make him a teenager, really focus on him in high school. Well, the Spider-Man in the comic books that they were publishing at the time is an adult. So the Ultimate Line allowed them to give a more movie-friendly accessibility, which is what Jemis wanted when the X-Men movie was coming out. So the X-Men movie... Serves two purposes. It shows Hollywood. You can make big budget superhero films. That are faithful to the comic books. With multiple characters with superhero powers. And you can do it on a budget. Or you can up it. Because they upped it for X2. X2 came out bigger, better. Uh, did even better at the box office. Made them even more money. And then X-Men 3. The movie that everyone loves to hate. Made even more money. The X-Men was cooking. And it was the first of the modern Marvel. Cinematic giant achievements. That showed everybody uh, what was possible, and would would put in place the MCU? Because again, uh, Kevin Feige is an assistant; he, he is on the production staff lower down the food chain on the X Men movies, uh, with 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 everybody who is who is putting together this film. And the uh, the 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 X Men movie has a giant cinematic imprint in in, in that it jump started the cinematic, you know, Marvel universe right there in the year two thousand. Very successful on a budget. Multiple powers, multiple characters, but in the comic book world, they were pissed in the summer that they didn't have something to, to 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 capitalize on this. Well, here comes the Ultimate Line. It's 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 introduced the last weekend of September in 2000. It's a retelling. Spider Man is in high school. He gets bit by a spider. He is with students, exactly the same as he was in the opening of the Stan. Steve Ditko, epic stories that we love and we we are so, you know, enamored with. But now it's through a modern lens. It's through a modern lens. And this was a great, for all, for all intents and purposes, it was a great gimmick because it drew people to it. It drew me. I was very interested. I'm much more interested in the X-Men and the and the uh, Avengers books. guy. I really loved Mark Miller. When I was out with Bill Jemmes, he asked me, who's your favorite, what's your favorite comic? I said, The Authority by DC Comics. I love what Mark Miller and Vince... Uh, i'm sorry uh, frank quietly uh are, are doing on that book uh, uh frank's real name is vince so vin so so that that's why the slip up there but he his, his comic book name is frank quietly and he said well you're going to love you know everything that we have coming from mark because we just hired him away so even then i'm like wow marvel's going to be really interesting to watch i really enjoyed what mark was doing the x-men and what he did with the ultimates again they are 100 percent reboots going back in time making the characters younger putting them in fresher adventures with the same kind of infrastructure same bad guys same there's there's not a whole lot new going on the new was the technology and the youth and the eyes with which the characters were seeing the world that they were now walking into which was a modern 2000 world so ultimate spider-man comes out um they would try stuff like ultimate team-up which ultimately the, the 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 readers rejected and was and was was you know dismissed soon after because everything else ultimates was doing well but this very kind of weird way that they went about doing uh the ultimate team-up book was not something that was connecting even early on the retailers every retailer in my area the conventions that i was going to they'd be like yeah this is the one that you know that people aren't really you know embracing so what marvel did is they removed it because they were like well we, we just want all the ultimate stuff to work and it worked really well and it worked until about 2008 2000 you know It had a a nice, like, six, seven-year run. Uh, It it burned really bright, but the Marvel Universe, that the the, the standard Marvel Universe became so much more of a priority uh, to to the company that the Ultimate Universe was dialed down. Now, they've, you know, rebooted it and revisited it times before, and you're going to tell me, and I know, and I'm aware, the biggest, the crowning achievement of the Ultimate Universe is Miles Morales. He comes from the Ultimate Universe, again, doing yet another uh uh derivative the, the the ultimate versions of the marvel characters are derivatives and ultimately within that you got derivatives of derivatives and miles morales is most certainly uh again let me tell you this i've said this many times on this podcast so much of what we do is visual the reason i loved boba fett as a kid is because boom immediately saw him cool visual the reason i love the terminator boom Cool visual. The reason the Klingons were my favorite foil for Star Trek. Boom. Visual. The reason I loved Wolverine. Boom. Visual. We love our visuals. I will always maintain the success of Deadpool. Visual. Cable. Visual. We are a visual medium. Miles Morales costume is badass. The minute he shows up, he looks cool. His character is cool. Miles is cool. But that all black Spider-Man costume with the red um, webbing, I mean, Killer design. Killer design. We are drawn to what is cool. When I was a kid, Electra was cool. Even a kind of a horse guy with a with Thor's hammer, Beta Ray Bill, looked cool. Looked great. We gravitate towards cool. Cool is cool. It cool, you know, moves units, gets gets us invested. Miles Morales is cool. Miles Morales came from the ultimate universe, but that does not change for one minute that he is yet another derivative of Spider-Man. New characters were scaled way back. At Marvel Comics during the 2000s because the edict, they did not want to create new IP because they were restructuring the deals and were reevaluating how they wanted to handle new characters moving forward. They eventually figured that out. But during this time, the reason that you were getting a second version of Hawkeye, a second version of Falcon, a second version of Captain America, another version of Thor, another version of Iron Man, that's what Marvel really did in this period was give you all these different alternates of the same character because that was a safe play it was the safe play these books also weren't exploding in sales they were not doing enormous sales i just told you so many creators kind of went and 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 semi retired if not just didn't do work at all for the good three years 2003 2004 mark's coming back he's doing hunter killer you know jim lee returns to hush you know, uh, uh, all these, all these artists eventually reemerge. I come back in 2004. Okay. During this period, image was probably at its lowest point. It, I, I would say 2000, whenever invincible and walking dead come from 2000 on is a low point for image. It's partners are all kind of on vacation, retired, not doing work. The the, the company had basically laid down It went through a weird what they call it the girly book phase. Everybody who kind of had a scantily clad um, female was getting a green light to do a book at, at Image. The sales were the lowest that they had ever been in terms of publishing and circulation. So Image was basically laying down. It was kind of, it was also kind of laying down in, in, in semi-retirement during this period. But neither Marvel nor DC could take advantage of this because the, comp- the, the the industry was in a reset. And it was in a reset largely, I'm telling you right now, Hollywood doesn't like it when it's big movie stars don't make movies. Just like when Tom Cruise, there was a huge reporting again and again and again. And you think I'm going to talk about, I'm talking about Top Gun. No. Back in the mid nineties, after Jerry Maguire, Tom Cruise did not have a movie for three years. It drove Hollywood crazy. It drove his agents and managers crazy. They did articles like how Tom Cruise's managers and agents can't capitalize on him in that biggest heat of his career because he has gone over to make this movie with stanley kubrick and they all thought stanley kubrick was a mad scientist and he was keeping nicole kidman and tom cruise over in england making this movie for two and a half years which which prevented tom from booking roles and making more movies so when hollywood doesn't have their stars working and making new product it drives them crazy same with comics look at all the talent i just told you that wasn't doing work all of these giant names the bright shining stars of the comic book industry were all kind of in semi-retirement Check it out. You'll, you'll 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 this will all track. Todd McFarlane no longer drawing comics. Marshall Vestry no longer drawing comics. Jim Lee no longer drawing comics. I can go on and on and on. I've already told you this earlier in the podcast. These big giant names had all but retired and were not generating new work. I think it was a perfect opportunity for the readership to also, who had grown during that time, to maybe take some time off, buy less comics, check in less frequently. Marvel and DC did not take advantage of this. Neither, none of their books surged during this time. This was just to keep Marvel going. Now, in terms of Ultimate Spider-Man, this book also writes a dedicated passage knowing that Ultimate Spider-Man was kind of the big, the h- big, huge success of of its term. It says right here, in, in, in late September, early October, it denotes that Ultimate Spider-Man arrived. It says, Ultimate Spider-Man, number one, it had been attempted before, but it failed miserably. But there was just no reimagining Spider-Man's origin story. The fans liked him just the way he was, and the projects that tweaked, revamped, or dramatically altered Peter Parker's past, like John Byrne's Spider-Man chapter one—ouch—I didn't know they took a shot at him here—had uh, fallen by the wayside and were forgotten almost as soon as they were created. So everyone said that it couldn't be done, but Bill Jemis and Joe Quesada weren't about to believe that for one second. They ordered a new forward-looking policy. Rather than falling back on what had been done in the past, Jemis decided to recreate a Spider-Man that would capture the energy and vitality of today's youth and would speak to a contemporary audience rather than the one in the 1960s. To reach that goal, he hired rising indie comic star Brian Bendis to co-write the series with him. Yes, did you forget that Bill Jemis is listed as the co-writer on the first year's worth of Ultimate Spider-Man story? He is the writer alongside with Jemis. Again, in this Marvel published comic, I am reading this directly from this to you. Not my opinion. This is historic fact. Hiring indie rising star Brian Bendis to co-write the series with him. And getting popular Spider-Man veteran Mark Bagley to serve as the book's penciler. Soon, Ultimate Spider-Man was released, stunning the masses, sparking the red-hot fire that would launch the entire line of comic books based in this newly formed Ultimate Universe reality. After the initial arc, which saw Peter Parker first don his webs, inspired by the death of his Uncle Ben, Bendis eventually took over the writing chores. He slowly departed from the storylines of Stanley and Steve Ditko that they had drafted all those many years ago and headed in a new direction with Marvel's newest consistent seller. In this new universe, Peter Parker was reborn as a troubled teenager, balancing his life as a website technician for the Daily Bugle, having typical high school angst and a tumultuous relationship with Gwen Stacy, Harry Osborn, and Eddie Brock. So basically, it is the the reason I was kind of stunned is they're saying that there was new ground covered there. There was no, no new ground. It's just he had a laptop, and there was cell phones, and it was new technology. And let me tell you something. The guy who doesn't get enough credit in this because I was able to walk over to his studio down the street here i have lived in orange county my entire life up until just a few years ago so did the amazing talent inker finisher penciler creator art to you've seen his name t-h-i-b-e-r-t he inked me on new mutants he inked jim on x-men he did his own series black and white he inked dan jurgens on superman he is one of if not the best inkers embellishers finishers in the history of comic books art was the embellisher finisher on ultimate spider-man the uh, Mark Bagley was always very fast. He was able to do two books a month. One afternoon, I went over to Art's studio. He had a studio in an office park here in Yorba Linda. I went over to see him and his assistant FedEx delivered a box. Um he was at his board, you know, inking away. I grabbed the box that had been delivered by the FedEx person and I walked over to Art and he's like, "Oh, that's probably new Ultimate Spider-Man pages. You should you should take those out." Uh, Art Again, instructed me to open the box. I opened the box. About 12 Spider-Man pages came out. I, as a penciler, know what rough pencils look like, layouts look like, breakdowns look like. A a, a tight pencil is everything is accounted for. The style, the line weights. That is what me and my peer group kind of grew up producing is tight pencils. Uh, uh, layouts, is, is layouts and breakdowns are basically skeletal kind of uh, just, just instructional where, where the body is twisting and the face, you know, indication of face, no real lighting effect, no, no rendering whatsoever. A layout and a breakdown is basically just the skeletal structure, maybe note of the characters. And yeah, you'll draw glasses on Peter Parker and you'll see the hair, but it's, it's very just, uh, information driven it's more like showing you know now in the bronze age in the 70s Gil Kane John Buscema these guys thrived on providing breakdowns to great finishers like Joe Rubenstein Terry Austin Bob McLeod Tom Palmer uh uh you know Dick Giordano all manner of amazing finishers were able to uh step in and work with some of this very basic breakdown layout structure these were I would almost say thumbnails, which is a step below layouts and breakdowns. The stuff that Mark Bagley was producing on Spider-Man, and I said, "Wait, art? This is what you're inking?" This, is? and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, but but it's fine. I I I really enjoy going in and giving it all the polish and figuring it out, and, and it's just you know it keeps the the trains running on time." Art, uh, had I not seen those pages personally with my own eyes, I, I would not have known the um the lack of uh, just the most basic storytelling information. Now the camera work has to be there and Bagley's storytelling and camera work was all his own, but so much of the polish, the rendering, the spotting of blacks, uh, just the technique that what, what we call the eye candy that's put on top was provided in those days with great consistency, lush, you know, ink lines, brush lines, render lines. Uh, art was doing a ton of heavy lifting to keep that book going and he doesn't get enough credit and he's not credited there. So I wanted to give him credit here today. Bottom line, those books had become a priority because they were new, they were fresh, and it was a great jumping on point. Hey, you can't go back and buy, or you we you know we've reprinted these Marvel Tales time and again. And what he with, with with it was actually called Marvel Tales is the book that they reprinted the early Stan, Steve Ditko, John Romita Senior Spider Man stories, the classic stories. And I think they would have probably gone back to the well. They were probably you know had they done that, been going back to the well a fourth or fifth time in that regard. So. Now we'll just hire new guys to put them in modern settings and call it Ultimate Spider-Man, and give it a giant marketing push and, and 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 get it out there eighteen months before the big Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie and and we'll we'll capitalize on this and they did and they did the same thing with the X-Men and the Avengers and they were really great and fun comics and they are uh, huge achievements. The Brian Hitch work on Ultimates Year One is one of the best comic books of the two thousands. He and Mark Miller, what they accomplished on Ultimates is stunning to me. It is. Uh, it rises above so much of all the material out there, really just to the, to the storytelling, to the storytelling and the real, it was a really, you got the feeling it was a very R rated comic book. It was, it was playing with all of Stan and Jack's toys and, and even some old Jim shooter storylines when Hank Pym abused, uh, Janet and, uh, Janet Pym when 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 Yellowjacket is beating up giant man beating up on the wasp, it was a very disturbing story in the eighties that that some questioned why Jim Shooter did it. Mark Millar said, Oh, I can go, I can lean even darker into this. And he did. And it was astonishing to read. And then the outcome of this, when Captain America decides he's gonna hunt down Hank Pym as Giant Man and show him, you know, that he shouldn't ever abuse anyone else, much less his wife. Really dramatic stuff. Really dramatic very mature R-rated stuff. Highly recommended. The Spider-Man book really, for me, felt like it was more all ages. But as I said, the ultimate line ran its course and it was shelved and hasn't been around for longer than it was around. Um, And in that, you know, sense also, it goes without saying that the template for the success of this, except it was much more successful, was Heroes Reborn. And I'm going to say that because not saying it is a complete and utter lie. Like, If I didn't say that what Jim did with Fantastic Four and Iron Man and what I did with Avengers and Cap were more successful, that would be disingenuous. But the idea of restarting with a fresh take, what I just told you, had been done four years before with Heroes Reborn to much greater success. But there was less of a commitment to seeing those books through because they were outsourced. And go listen to my Heroes Reborn podcast for the full stories behind those outrageous times because because producing those books was absolutely incredible because we had the the entire marvel new york offices working against us because they didn't like that they had outsourced to the west coast office the heroes reborn saga is a four-part saga it's the first year it is my best and most popular episodes and i would be remiss to not pivot and promote those to you but that is when we first did this let's go and put them in modern settings and Jim did it with Fantastic Four and Iron Man. I did it with uh, Avengers and with Captain America. So again, the fact that this had been done before to great success four years ago, now it felt like, well, now we've got our house in order. There's a new owner. We can do this and control this with talent that that, that we have here and, and, and new voices. And, and Bill Jemis is the writer. He is the co-writer of those key Ultimate Spider-Man issues. And... Uh, and, and 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 they felt like well this this works this rebooting this retooling works let's go Chris Hemsworth manager no less at Avengers infinity war upon you know I'd already met Chris a couple times at different functions said hey because he was my agent he was my agent in the 90s now he's one of Chris Hemsworth managers says hey this is Rob Rob is is one of the guys who rebooted the Avengers and, and really kind of why we're here today you know? got got the ball running, got got Avengers back in the top of the charts, which is, again, uh, if you did not know, and I love telling this because I did not know until 2012 when the numbers came out. I literally did not know this for 16 years that my Avengers Heroes Reborn run is the most, the best-selling Avengers run of all time, going all the way back through the 60s to modern day times. And you know, I've always felt that they have tried greatly to outsell it. Maybe someday they will. But for this time, from 1996 till now, Uh, So we just wrapped the 25th year, 25 years of Heroes Reborn. 26 years ago, Avengers, number one, uh, again, a reboot, a modern retelling, much the same of what they did with Ultimates, except not as successful, was launched. So this is a fun opportunity, but this is the signature of the Quemus era, is the ultimate line. Everything else in the year 2000 is like a new Punisher series, some Fantastic Four spinoffs, but the ultimate line was the signature. It came out. Late September, they shipped four issues, and they got the X-Men relaunched before the end of the year by November and December. So the ultimate line was up and running in the year 2000. Now, before I sign off on the comic book end of things, you're like, but Rob, what about DC? I I am going to get it. DC made their own version of a coffee table book, much like this amazing Marvel Chronicle book. And in their book, which goes year for year, because they're enamored with this year-to-year stuff, let me read to you what DC... Boast about their forays into the year 2000. 2000, again, another year-by-year Chronicle coffee table book, this one by by, by DC. Says, 2000, a brave new era. With the start of the new decade and a new millennium, DC Comics was making plans for the future while other comic book companies had jumped headfirst into the 90s trend of special covers after special covers. Gee, I wonder who they're trying to take shots at here. Is it Marvel or is it Image? Is it both? DC had always put its stories first. In 2000, writers and artists who would go on to provide the company with some of their all-time greatest stories were publishing boundaries and re were pushing boundaries and revitalizing established characters. Whether it was future megastar Jeff Johns writing The Flash, established writer-artist Walt Simonson launching Orion of the New Gods, or Writer Grant Morrison and artist Frank Quietly on their graphic novel, Justice League America Earth 2. It was clear DC had every faith in the talent who were working on their books. These individuals and other future stars would take DC titles to whole new levels of excitement over the next decade and make the company the place for today's creative talent. That tells you nothing and Literally in that book I flipped through, it's just various issues of different comics and, and that's the best they came up with for the year 2000. So yeah, The Flash was good. Jeff Johns' Flash was really good. Jeff Johns, Scott Collins, I bought every issue. Sometimes they had Brian Boland covers. They were really nice. The Orion uh, stuff by Walt Simonson was signature. I even did a backup story in that again before I retired. And uh, so, so I'm very familiar with that series as well. 2000, The Ultimate Line, Quemus. Bill Jemis Wright and Spider-Man. These are big deals. This is the stuff that Marvel was dining out on and was pivoting towards making sure that you had all access, all ages uh, comic books that you could consume. Now, given that their their characters were coming in in, in giant mega budgeted movies down the pike and they wanted you to have new uh, collections and that's what we're going to pivot to the next time around. But as we close out today... We, that, 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 that there's a lot to answer in terms of talent, talent management, everything that was going forward in the 2000s. And we'll, and we'll dance with that next time around. But I want to read to you and finish out that top 10 movie list. And if you were wondering what were the top 10 movies of 2000, number one is going to shock you a little, but it was boy that they were cooking with oil. As they said, they were, they were cooking with these adaptations, how the Grinch stole Christmas was number one. By thirty six million, beating out Mission Impossible uh, for the number one movie of two thousand. Obviously released in in in, uh, in at Christmas time or Thanksgiving time, but man, it was churn and It made a ton of money. Two hundred and fifty one million. Mission Impossible two, two hundred and fifteen million. Gladiator, Gladiator, huge movie, giant impact on everything going forward. Uh, how many you know without Gladiator? Do you really think you get 300? You do not. You you don't get Frank Miller's adaptation. I told a story of, based on this, how I had a four-month window with T- Frank Miller. He signed, and I tried to get Tom Cruise to be in 300 and star in 300, but uh, he didn't like the fact that... Have you ever seen Tom Cruise die on film? I don't think you have. He has a thing against dying, and it was implemented in his... I don't want to die in film. I don't want to, you know, Ozymandias. I, I, I don't want to be uh, Leonidas and go out this way. The Perfect Storm was the number 4th movie at $182 million. I don't think I told you Gladiator had $186 million. Number 3 film. Number 5, Meet the Parents which edged out X-Men number 6. Number 7 is Scary Movie. Number 8 was Lo- What Lies Beneath. A really cool movie with Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer. Number 9 was Dinosaur. Some dodgy early CG. And number 10 was Aaron Brockovich. Okay. Oh, number 11, if you're wondering, was Nutty Professor 2. Number 12 was Charlie's Angels. Number 14 was Remember the Titans. So This is a great movie for cinema. Mission Impossible 2 is rad. Gladiator is, again, we're going to discuss that more in the the part two of the 2000s. But we have set the table for what has occurred, and and we're going to get more into what was the management style uh, of the 2000s at both DC and Marvel, and why is DC's blurb that I read to you so sad? And, And what else was going on in the culture and the company? And we're going to delve more into that as we go into part two of the 2000s, in the second edition of this particular uh, offering of our decade series, the year 2000. And we will be back with so much more in our next installment. So do not miss out. Look at what we covered today. The ultimate line, the age of derivatives was alive and well, and it was born. And it was really uh, what, what heroes were born just scratched at, just knocked on the door. They embraced and the ultimate line would just put it into into you know, overload in, in, in terms of, of giving you these brand new versions, but we've only just begun. We have only just begun uh, to, to knock on this derivative door and we'll get more into that again in our next installment as we continue to delve into the year 2000. I I, I hope you guys are just enjoying this decade series as much as I am. What a kick. I did not realize how fun it would be to talk about the two thousands. I mean, uh, the year 2000. What a blast. What an absolute blast it's been. Listen, uh, at the end of every episode, I share your guys' reviews that you leave for us on the different platforms that we have the podcast on. And I thank you so very much for all the kind, generous, encouraging words that you leave. I read those generous, encouraging words that you leave for me at the end of every episode as I'm about to right now. Uh, And and you guys, I'm going to tell you, you know, I was just at a, a store appearance in North Carolina this last weekend, and I am just overwhelmed how many of you, young, old, are listening to the podcast, talking to me about the podcast. Uh, I am so touched. I love our discussions about the podcast. You guys, I do this show for you, and, and you first, foremost, and always, uh, it is like this um, really fun download that I'm able to share, and I'm just so uh, really fortunate that you guys are coming along with the ride, coming along the ride with me. And you leave these amazing and great uh, responses like the one I got here from Colby Zoom. Colby Zoom. He gives us five stars. Thank you, Colby. It's his amazing comic book podcast. Rob Liefeld's enthusiasm is contagious and reminds me of my own love for comics. The real backstories on the comic book business and how it works is intriguing to me. And if it interests you, this is the podcast for you. Rob backs up his information with his own records and researchers past interviews from comic news magazines most people know nothing about or forgot. The amount of information and data provides, provided by Rob is nothing short of mind-blowing. Let's, let's read that again. The amount of information and data provided by Rob is nothing short of mind-blowing. You want to know what goes on behind the scenes of some of the most monumental moments in comics. Tune into this podcast. You will not regret it. Wow, that was... That, that's a hall of famer right there. I appreciate that. Colby Zoom, mainly I can tell that you're excited. And, and uh, this just falls in line with so much of the really nice and generous things you guys are sharing to me. Um, I do uh, track down the the comics and the magazines of my youth and the books and all the stuff that I've invested in. And I love to share with you so much of what you may not know. And I've taken for granted stories that I really thought that so many people knew, but they didn't know. And I've really, I, I I have been humbled by sharing stuff. That I go, oh man, people know this story already. And then I'll share it and I'm like, wow, I didn't realize no one knew this story. So thank you guys. Thank you, Colby Zoom. You leave these reviews for us, these five stars, these um, comments uh, on the platforms, and I will read them at the end of every show. Thank you again so much for just taking this journey with me and you guys know. I am all over social media. I am on Twitter at Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld on Instagram. I am at Rob Liefeld. Both of those names have blue checks at Robert Liefeld is Twitter at Rob Liefeld is Instagram. I read all your comments, your mentions, your DMS, your messages. I am so appreciative that we get to engage in this way. I thank you so much for reaching out with me. I try and, um, always kind of reach back, talk back with you guys. I am all over Facebook, this podcast. Rob observations with Rob Liefeld has a dedicated page on Facebook. I have a group on Facebook called Rob Liefeld an extreme group. That is a group that myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala are the administrators of. We would love to welcome you into that group. Uh, all manner of different stories and comics and memories and art are shared. So, so give the Rob Liefeld and extreme group a shout out, uh, a, a try. And, uh, I really do love talking to you guys across all these different platforms. It is so, um, appreciated by me. And, and, and just thank you each and every week for, for listening to the show. And, and, uh, and I, and I hope that you guys are enjoying it as much as I am doing this show. So here's the deal. At the end of every episode, I tell you how important it is. Get some rest, watch a great show, read a great book, read a great comic book, look at some great art, have a great bowl of cereal. What's your favorite? Is it Cocoa Puffs? Is it Lucky Charms? Is it, is it tricks? Cause tricks are for kids. Um, you know, is it Fruity Pebbles? Look, cereal, candy bars, good stuff. Doritos, baked Lays, Cheetos, Lays, barbecue, whatever. I love all of it. I, I am a full on snack dude. Love all this food. Grew up with it. Cling to it. <laughs> uh, still to this day, don't tell my family. No, what, what do you, they already know. They already think I eat like crap, but it feels good. Comfort food is called comfort food for a reason, right? So the bottom line is to take a minute. Have a great big bowl of ice cream with whipped cream. Uh, uh, just, just, dude, serve yourself. Have a good time. Maybe not every night, but at least once a weekend, once a week. Just chill, absorb, have fun. You got to get away. You got to shake it out and uh, just partake in in the fun stuff that you love. Uh, I my my favorite is plopping down on my beanbag and reading my comic books and flipping through, uh, you know, the graphic novels and uh, just. I just get my kicks just looking at comics I love and art and stories, uh, new and old, new formats, old formats. Sometimes it's digital. I prefer the newsprinty stuff from my uh, from my boxes uh, in, in my collection. So, but mix it up, man. That is my advice to you: is to relax and enjoy yourself. Play a game with your friends. Uh, go out, and have a great dinner, see movies. Just uh, take care of yourself spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically try and hit as many of those as you possibly can and just k- get that balance out there what a crazy bunch of years it's been I know I'm a dad I'm a husband I'm a I'm a son still uh you know I just uh it's uh it's been crazy so so you guys I'm just reaching out there rooting for you I am pulling for you and I am wishing you all the best make sure that you swing around my way one more time because I'm going to be here and we are going to talk again real soon <laughs>